So John has had kind of a busy weekend. Uh, I talked to him yesterday to get his, his bio uh, right after he had got done with a three-hour interview for his ordination. So he comes to us now as an ordained pastor. So congratulations on that, John, and, and thank you. This is, yeah, I'm sure, I'm, I'm thinking about preparation, and you really had a load on so we just thank you again for coming today we're looking forward to hearing what you have to say well John is the director of development at the Niagara Gospel Mission and he told me some about this work that they do there and it's amazing it's a wonderful gospel ministry um, specifically even he, he works with veterans John himself is a veteran he was six years in the army and now he's working with with homeless vets and the Niagara Gospel Mission has the largest uh, emergency shelter 100 beds for homeless people homeless men and especially homeless veterans in uh, in Niagara County and they have the beauty of it that I see that I see in it is that you know there are a lot of programs out there for veterans but what John and what the Niagara Gospel Mission does is they introduce these people to Jesus Christ. Right? That's not a program. That's a new creation. That's a change of life. So it's so important, the work that you do, and so thankful that you do it. And, and you just you know, told me how thankful you were to even to be in it, to be doing it. So thanks for, for your gifts and the way that you share them there. And we'll pray for your ministry when I pray today as well. Today's scripture reading is in the book of Nehemiah, um, chapter 8, starting at verse 1. In your pew Bibles, that's page 403. Nehemiah 8, starting at verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord has commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside them stood Messiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. On his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Micaiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. On his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it, for the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord and the great God. And he, the people, answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shab Bataya, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelta, 
Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense, so that the people could understand the reading. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for having me here today, and just your, your warm embrace to me and my family. It really, it really means a lot. Um, and I'm just going to go into a quick few minutes about our ministry. I'm going to do that up front because I've recognized if I do it at the end, I look at my clock. I'm a Baptist preacher. You're, you're used to it. We can just keep going. So uh, I wouldn't have time then to explain exactly what we do uh, in Niagara Falls. And so um, I'm just going to take a few minutes, a, a quick overview um, before this time. And so we have four major programs that happen at the Niagara Gospel Mission. And the first, we kind of divide them by floors. And our first floor is our emergency shelter. So that's a 30-day uh, shelter for those uh, who are in immediate need. So the men are in immediate need. It's, I need a place to stay now. And they can come for 30 days. And while they're there, we, we give them tasks. You know, we don't, we, we kind of get them to start working in the building and they can then extend their time um, as they work uh, in the building. And um, they're given 30 days. There's a required chapel service they got to go to every Thursday. Um, there's Bible studies that happen through the week that happen all at that first floor. We have 11 Bible studies that happen throughout the week, uh, and then two church services, one on Thursday and then one on Sunday morning uh, for the men there. So the gospel is proclaimed daily uh, as dinner times as well. We have a gospel presentation that everyone must sit through, uh, before they can get their meal. So uh, the gospel is preached daily to men um, who are in the most need uh, and women that come to our dinner, uh, dinner time uh, meals. And so uh, Psalm 34 says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. And that's exactly who's walking through our doors every single day, the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. And so we are seeing God do an amazing thing. Just last month, we had five people get saved uh, through, through the presentation of the gospel uh, in our ministry. And so we were just ecstatic that God is doing this. Um, on our third and fourth floor, so we're going to skip one for right now, our third and fourth floor is a transitional housing unit. And so if anyone has been looking for apartments lately, uh, it's very expensive. <laughs> and so especially when you're getting out of prison, um, or whatever circumstances led you to our doors, it's hard to get a job. And if you don't have a job, you can't afford an apartment. Um, so we provide a low-income housing option. And again, it's in our building where the gospel is presented daily uh, to them. And so they have that. It's a two-year program that they can live there. Um, we help them find jobs, uh, and we connect them to a local church. And then that is what we hope that after their two years, it's kind of, you know, fly away from home <laughs> and, uh, and go do it on your own. And then on the second floor, we have our discipleship program, and our discipleship program is our Christian-centered, uh, gospel-centered life uh, change recovery program. Um, we, that's where we want everyone to go through uh, before they, you know, either they come into the shelter, we want them to go there, we encourage them to go there, um, and then if they're on third and fourth floor and they start struggling, we encourage them to go back down into our recovery program. And that is run by a pastor and a chaplain who oversee that entire program. Everything is gospel-centered, Bible-centered teaching, um, we work with them. They, they have counselors, as in just pastors that come in that are connected to that, that individual. Um, and then they, they walk through uh, their, their problems in a biblical-centered, biblical biblical counseling way 
um, and going to the Word. What does the Word have to say about uh, your sin problems? And again, we have local churches. Our, our big thing is, you know, we're, we're not a church. Uh, we're not a church in Niagara Falls. We are the trench. Uh, I'm, I was in the Army, so we're, the way I look at it is, is we are a trench in which the local church can enter to fight the fight uh, in, in our city. Um, so they can enter that trench. They can, they can come to us. We're an extension of that local church as they come to us and they do ministry to the poor, which is our uh, command from our Lord. And so on that second floor as well is where our veterans program is housed. Uh, 70% of our recovery program are veterans because, they're, because we positioned them together. We wanted our vets to then want to go into the recovery program. So our emergency shelter uh, for the veterans is a 60-day versus a 30-day. Uh, we connect them with the VA uh, for all their services. And also, I run a veteran support group for them uh, every other week. And we get together and talk about um, how messed up we got. <laughs> so, so um, it's, again, it's great to be here. And just to speak on the future quickly of our ministries, we are fundraising for a, a women and children's shelter in Niagara Falls. And uh, just this past week, actually Thursday, we had a need study completed um, for what is the actual, give me the data of the need of homeless women and children in Niagara Falls. And we found that in the last six months, there were 650 calls, 650 calls that had to be turned away from services um, by all social services, you know, both city run, state run, uh, and nonprofits. So that's 109 a month, and some of these are repeat calls. But if you can imagine being a woman um, trying to flee with your children from a domestic violence, um, or you're in substance abuse and you need uh, help, and you call and you get turned away, um, and we believe that it is the call of the church, and we believe that it is the responsibility of God's people um, to to meet that call, um, and we're privileged uh, for the opportunity to strive towards that in our ministry. And so before we get into Nehemiah 8, I hope uh, you've turned there already. And if you haven't, that is where we're going to be. Um, let's pray. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for Greece Baptist Church and the opportunity uh, to come here and preach, um, to come and, and share your word uh, with them uh, and, to, and to worship with them. God, this is such a blessing um, for me and my family. Uh, and, and just, Lord, be with us this morning as we, as we hear what you have to say to us uh, in the centrality of your word. In your name we pray, amen. So before we get into our message, and our message title uh, can, be, can be bring the book or rebuilding God's cities on his word, um, however you want to put that. But before we get into that, I just want to do a quick um, overview of Nehemiah and the Reformation and revival that happened in Jerusalem. I don't know when the last time you, you took, a, took a pause in the book of Nehemiah was, but just in case it's been a while, I just want to give you a quick overview of the story. So in chapter 1, Nehemiah, we see that Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king, and his brother, who had gone to Jerusalem further, or excuse me, earlier, to Judah, and he was in Jerusalem, comes back to bring a report while Nehemiah is still in Persia. And he says this, that this is his this is what his, the report was, Nehemiah 1.3. They said to me, the remnant there in the province uh, who remain from the captivity are in great calamity and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And the situation in Jerusalem is pretty dire. 
Um, and I don't know when the last time you've traveled to the city of Niagara Falls, not just saw the water falling off the rock and left, but actually went to the city there. And that is a literal description of our city. <laughs> our city is broken down. It's in dire straits. Uh, the buildings are in ruin. Uh, Poverty-stricken people. Um, and, and I can't help when I read it to see the parallel of a city I grew up in, the city I love. And so Nehemiah hears this report, and he's so moved by love that he then is going to take a real risk. And the real risk is he's going to ask the king for an opportunity to go and work on this problem. Now, number one, he's employed by the king, so the king would be losing his most trust, one of his most trusted advisors, his cupbearer. But number two, to ask the king, we read this in Ezra 4, to ask the king for anything that was personal, you, know, you, you could run the risk of losing your head. Even his wife, which is what we see in Esther, she was afraid she'd lose her head if he hadn't stretched out his golden scepter to her. So now Nehemiah is in a real risk and uh, what he's going to do, but he's so moved by love that he knew he must go. He, so before he does this, he prays uh, for the repentance of himself and the repentance of his people that, are, that he's going to serve. He goes to the king. He asks not only the king for permission, but for provisions for the help of the people there. And again, he knew the dangers uh, of what he was doing, but he was so moved by love that he had to do something. He had to act. And, and just like us, when we're moved by love or something we have a burning passion for given by God, we have to act. We can't sit on that burning passion. We have to do something about it to intervene. And so this is what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah chapter 2, he goes, he, he starts working on the, the wall in Jerusalem. Chapter 3, he, he commissions people to build right in, front of, right in front of where they're at or where they're employed. Um, we read in chapters 4 and 6 that Nehemiah has some opposition from those who are in the area currently that don't want to see this work done. Um, but his leadership skills and abilities that God had given him, he's able to both work on the wall and defend at the same time. And um, I'm sure a lot of people in this room know the term Charles Spurgeon. You know the man Charles Spurgeon? Well, Charles Spurgeon took from this part of Nehemiah uh, his magazine and now Founders Ministries podcast as the sword and the trowel. So while men were working with a trowel to rebuild this wall, they had a sword to defend themselves as well as some of the men also pulling guard in a rotating fashion. And so that sword and the trowel, that build and defend, that mentality is what Charles Spurgeon saw and wanted um, for, for London, where he was at, uh, and we should want for ourselves. In chapter 6, we see that the wall is finished. And in uh, chapter 7, we see that the city is starting to, to build some structure. And I just want to get a some, little something on the wall being finished. 52 days is how long it took them with trowels and mortar and bricks to build a wall around a city. Now, it takes 52 days to hit a pothole, call the city, and then from that paperwork to go from that desk to the other desk <laughs> to fix it, right? I mean, we've all seen that, but it's 52 days to rebuild a wall. In 52 days is the grace of God on, the, on, on, their lot, on, on this whole situation. It's amazing what they were able to accomplish uh, through God, or through God, through them. And, and he starts again, he starts establishing a guard, a sense of order. He makes a registry and he starts enforcing the Sabbath there. 
And these are all great things, and I encourage you to read through the book of Nehemiah. Um, takes 13, it's 13 chapters. You take one a day, in two weeks you'll read through the book of Nehemiah. Fascinating. Nehemiah is, is probably my favorite uh, Bible character in the Old Testament. I love, I love Nehemiah. My, my office, I actually have a sword I was awarded when I was in Afghanistan and a trowel and bricks because I just, I, that keeps me focused. I love, I love the story of Nehemiah. And um, his leadership, his prayer, his prayer life is outstanding. You read through there and you just read the prayers of Nehemiah so deep and, and there's so much depth. And at our mission, we get what we call the three P's of revival, the three P's that keep us focused. And that's prayer, provide, and proclaim. Those three, pray, provide, proclaim, are what keep us focused and what our ministry is about. And so now we're in Nehemiah chapter 8. So that's a quick overview of the first seven chapters. And now we're in Nehemiah chapter 8. And I'm just going to read, read it again, and I'm going I'm to butcher the names as well. So don't feel so bad. <laughs> Starting verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in the front of the water gate. And they said to Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of the men, women, and all who could understand when listening on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of all of men and women, those who could understand and all the ears of, <clears throat> of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden podium, which they had made for that very purpose. And beside him stood Manatai, Shemai, Anani, Uriah, Helakai, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padai, Mishael, Malashem, Hesham, Habedanam, Zechariah, and Malshiam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people when he opened it. All the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God. And all people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting their hands, when they bowed low and worshipped Yahweh with their faces on the ground. Also Jesho, Benai, Sherebai, Jamin, Akub, Shelapai, Harai, Messiai, Keltai, Ezerai, Josab, Hanan, Pelai, and the Levites were providing understanding of the law to the people while the people stood in their place. They read from the book from the law of God explaining and giving insight, and they provided understanding to the reading. And this is where we get the title, Bring the Book, right? Because what we had seen is we saw that they had just built this building, right? They just, they just built this wall. They're all excited. They just fought off um, all this opposition. They, just, they stopped everything from happening. Now they're starting to put some order into the city and Nehemiah knows that that's not enough. It's not enough just to elect a Nehemiah and he's going to rebuild the city and we're all going to feel safe. And afterwards, what they don't ask for is they don't ask for the most intelligent community organizer to come and say, hey, can you please tell us how we're supposed to effectively run the city? They don't open up a Rebuilt City magazine and say, you know, hey, what, what, what should we be doing? What's the first five things we should be doing here? Or the most intelligent person or the philosophy of the day. No, they, they get Ezra to bring the book 
to bring the scriptures to bear. It's not Nehemiah saying you must do this or Ezra saying, you know, this is what I think our standard should be either. This is a call of the people. The people say, we need the word of God. They can see that this has just happened in 52 days. They're like, we, if God did this, we need to know what he says. And I want to say that when people see what God's doing, when they see what God's doing in this church, they want to know what he says. When people see a change in my life or in your life, they want to know what changed. How did you change? Why did you change? And in essence, what they're asking you to do is bring the book. How how are you not living the way you used to? Well, I encountered God. And this is what he says. And that's what they're asking for. Psalm 119, 97 to 104 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are mine forever. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I perceive more than the age, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet is your word to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. From your precepts I gain perception, therefore I hate every false way. The people knew that the law of God, what God has to say about how we live, is how they should govern their lives. That's what the people here knew. Verses 5 through 6 of same Nehemiah chapter 8. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting their hands, and they bowed low and worshipped Yahweh with their faces on the ground. Complete and utter reverence for the sovereign and holy God and what he has to say. I love that when you guys do the scripture reading, you have the response. This Thanks be to God for his word. And that's what everyone's doing here. Thanks be to God for his word. And people who I grew up with, especially when I was in the army, would ask me, why do you believe the Bible? And this is something we have to encounter, because if we say, well, it just changed our lives, well, there's people whose lives have changed through Islam or from AA. And the greater power that they have to look to in AA is the blinking light outside of their apartment. And they say, that's what changed my life. So why the book? Why the book? Dr. Vodibachum, I think, has the most succinct, plainly answered statement that he, he said one time, and I wrote it down because I, just, I love it. He says, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than, than human in origin. What's an easier way to say that? It's true. That's why. It's true. And it's because it's never been proven false, number one. But number two, when I actively put this in my life, I can see that it's true. When I observe what's going on around me, it's more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper. It is the truth. Again, 
The 1689 Baptist Confession says this about the Holy Scriptures, chapter 1, paragraph 1. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal Himself and declare His will to His church to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish the comfort and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world. The Lord put His revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing His will to His people have now ceased. So why bring the book? Why bring the book? Because it is the standard by which we are to live. It's the benchmark. It tells us how to live and how to be saved. This is the belief in what's called the sufficiency of Scripture. Not that Scripture is a guide in some things, or it's, it's, it's good and you, know, you can read some stuff and you pick and choose what you like. No. It's sufficient for all things. All life and godliness. And, and, and when I'm trying to make a decision in my life, I don't say, I don't say what, what does someone else say? Or This is not to say you don't get advice from people, but this, what, is, what does the news say? What, is, what does the magazine say? No, I, I go to the book. I go to the book for what my life needs, how it needs to run. And if I may interject something about our ministry, what sets us apart from other homeless ministries in Buffalo and Niagara region is when our, our director, our board, our, our staff are trying to figure out what should the Niagara Gospel Mission do next. The first thing they say is bring the book. That is the standard. It doesn't matter that we're a homeless shelter and not Grace Baptist Church. That is the standard of life and how we are to run. Not how can we get more money or even what is the government saying the best way to help these people are, but simply bring the book which guides all our decisions. And that's why we don't take the federal or state money because what they want to do, and if you, if, if you know New York State, what they want to do is they want to take away your ability to bring the book. And it's right there in writing. Sign this. We'll give you millions. But you can't bring the book. And we just say, no, thank you. And so my question to you is simply, do you bring the book? When there's a struggle or a decision that has to be made in your life, do you bring the book? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of, the, of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division between soul and spirit of joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Or 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. When you face problems, do you bring the book? Is this the first place you go? When you lose a spouse 
or a child, do you bring the book? When you lose your job, do you bring the book? When you're deciding how, what purchases should I make, do you bring the book? It is only through prayer and reading the word that the spirit will move inside you in order to give you the direction that God wills you to go. You have to bring the book. But we see here in our passage of scripture that it wasn't just bringing the book. And we see as our government and culture move further and further away from the truth of God's word, we must bring the book to them. We must bring the book to others. We must point our world to what God is saying to them. And that takes us from bringing the book to preaching the book. From bringing the book to preaching the book. We must preach the book. Verses 4 and 8 of, Ezra, of Nehemiah 8. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden podium, which they had made for that very purpose. That's the purpose of this wooden podium, to preach the word of God. Verse 7, bravo to 8. When providing understanding, we're providing un understanding of the law to the people while the people stood in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, explaining and giving insight. And they provided understanding to the reading. That's preaching. That's exactly what preaching is. Ezra and the Levites preached to the people the word of God. Again, they didn't preach fables. They didn't preach psychology. They didn't preach, again, what, what New York Times says. They preached the word of God. That's what preaching is. And in, in 1 Timothy 4, 13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. That is exactly what we see Ezra doing here. He has read from the law, and then he exhorts, meaning to address or communication, empathetically urging someone to do something. We could also say encouraging or persuading. That's what it is, teaching the word of God. The Puritans would say that preaching was the, quote, primary means of grace. And when you study the book of Acts, one-fourth of the book of Acts is sermons that is preached. When Jesus came, he was a preacher. He was preceded by John the Baptist, a preacher. And then he trained 12 men to be preachers of the word of God. We need the preached word. That's why we gather today. We need this. And to be honest, there's a famine in the land when it comes to preaching. We have preaching, but so many people don't care or they don't know. And a lot of preaching we do have is not centered on the word of God. It's a bunch of motivational speeches that are meant to make you feel happy, feel great, and then leave not changed. God has called men like Pastor Dave here to stand in this pulpit and preach to you the word of God, and that is very important for you and growing. To stand in here and preach in and out every week, besides this week. <laughs> oh, we understand. <laughs> no, but... But to preach, to come up here and preach week in and week out the word of God because he loves and cares for you. That is what we see here. So what Nehemiah is saying in this book and in turn God is telling us 
is that if we are to see revival in our context, Niagara Falls, in yours, Dansville, in all of western New York, if we are to bring people to their knees before the Lord, we need to boldly preach the gospel. We need to cut out preaching, or we need not to cut out preaching, rather. We need more of it. We, we cannot give up the proclamation of the gospel and the word of God. It cannot happen. It doesn't matter what big name is telling us we should. We cannot. It is our call. And if it was the call for Jerusalem to change, it's the call for Niagara Falls to change, it's the call for Dansville, Rochester, wherever it is, this is what changes people. And again, Niagara Gospel Mission, this is what we do. We have lost and dying people coming to our doors. And we often say as a staff, if we simply house, feed, and clothe them, we're just simply giving them a more comfortable ride to hell. And that's all we're doing. However, if we preach the gospel to them and have faithful men and women come in and talk and disciple those who are there, we can lead them to Christ. And if their situation financially never changes, okay, but we'll spend eternity with them. And that's what matters. So this is what we do. And because we, like the people of Jerusalem, have said, bring the book. And in God's word, we have seen that this is the way to revive cities and to get into hearts. This is what we must do as churches, is bring the book. And so now if you'd like to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And this really is the guidepost for us as a, as a ministry. This is the verse we look at and say, this is our call, this is our goal. This really encompasses everything we're about. And so we're going to read Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he, that is Christ, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And, was, <clears throat> and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. So Jesus here, in his ministry, reads from Isaiah 61.1, and he starts his ministry in Nazareth right here. And in verse 18 uh, is, is the verse that we often reference because when people ask about our ministry. Because it really does loudly proclaim what we should all be about and what we're about. And that is proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. And it's all through his gospel. So first, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. I find it interesting, and this is kind of a side note, that all through Jesus' ministry, as you look at it, he depends on the Godhead for his ministry. It's not just Christ coming down. It's, hey, I'm doing the will of my Father. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's humble and submissive in that. And, and you see the whole Trinity is at play through Christ's ministry. It's the whole Godhead loves and is willing to come down and do this. And so this applies to our ministry here. We don't, we don't hire people who do not profess belief in Jesus Christ and have made him Lord. And the reason is, is because how can we expect and how can we expect as a church to not have leaders who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who are, who are, who are just 
under his, his authority and living the way God has and still do God's will. If we ourselves are not willing to come to that humble, submissive part of God and be empowered by the Holy Spirit, how can we expect to do God's will? We can't. We can't do anything apart from his power. And so we've been anointed for that ministry. And of course here, this is specifically talking about Christ. But we are anointed for his ministry. And we do depend on God's spirit. But what do we depend on him for? Continuing in verse 18, he appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. We are sent out to preach the gospel, and in our ministry, it's literally to the poor. But we can also say the poor in spirit. Those who walk, who do not have God, are poor spiritually, spiritually bankrupt. That is what we do at the Niagara Gospel Mission. We work with the poor, addicts, mentally ill, and quite frankly, those who have just been discarded. Think about this. We, we live in Niagara Falls. It's the most, one of the most beautiful creations of God right under the Anirondack Mountains, if you're to ask my opinion. But I love the Anirondacks. So 9.5 million people a year from all around the world come to see water fall off a rock. But every time they do so, they walk right past and will not make eye contact with someone made in the image of God. Discarded from society, the poor. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that sets those captives that we just read free. That's it. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Christ and the gospel are the only thing that can free you and can free me. The fact that Jesus Christ, God, came down from heaven to be born of a virgin, so that, so that the line of Adam, so that that sin nature couldn't corrupt, to live a perfect life under the law, so that he could be our sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. That on the cross, he took the full measure, the full wrath of God that John Cooper deserves on that cross. He took that so that his people could be set free. But not only would he die on that tree, he would rise again three days later to set the captives free. And he ascended into heaven to prepare a place for you and me. That is the message. That is the gospel. My testimony is not the gospel. That's the gospel. And that is the message that sets people free. And we need to be heralds, proclaimers, that this is what Christ did for me. And he can do the same for you. So let us continue before I get too heated. <laughs> and recovery of sight to the blind. The gospel mission, we're not healing blind people by laying hands on them. But we believe God does miraculously heal. And we've seen healings through prayer and just praying for people. And God does amazing things. But the spiritually blind here, the spiritually blind, they cannot see God. They are so dark that the light of the gospel, they can't see it. They can't see it. And Christ is saying, I'm giving sight to the blind. And it's, it's that supernatural 
light and that, that's, that darkness that's over them. It's, it's so deep. And, and what we do is we provide that person's needs. You know, Charles Spurgeon said a gospel track is, is a lot more well-received than a loaf of bread, <laughs> right? We provide that need. We, we get them, we have them comfortable. And then we say, this is your issue. It's not your rent. It's not your drug problem, though that's part of the issue. This is your issue, that you're a sinner and you need saving. And then we help them, and we, we, we start to see that as we, as we help them, and as we love them, and, and this is, is true not just at the mission, but in all of our contexts, as we love them, as we help them, that, that light just gets brighter. That light gets brighter in that tunnel. Their darkness, the, the veil of their darkness starts to leave. As you show them the love of Christ and bring them the book, that, that, that darkness starts, the scales, like Paul, the scales start to fall off their eyes. And they can't help to see our Lord. Even if they don't bow the knee, they can't help to see who is actually there helping them. And it's God. And the last part here in verse 18, to set free those who are oppressed. Um, my, my job in the army um, was was a sniper in the army. That's, that's what I did for six years as a profession. And we had an awesome opportunity while we were in Afghanistan to be attached to the Special Operations Command. And we got to work with the Navy SEALs, Special Forces, and all those um, secret squirrel guys is what, how we nicknamed them. But, but um, the Special Forces guys, they would always, they loved their motto, and I, and I love it too. It's de oppresso liber, which is Latin for to liberate the oppressed. And that's, that's what they did, and they, they were great at it. But that's what Christ did. That's what we do as those who proclaim the gospel. We liberate the oppressed. We bring them that freedom. The oppressed is a label most people can put on themselves. And they're weighed down, and they're oppressed by, again, with us, homelessness, addiction, mental health problems, but loneliness the consequences of their sin. They've seen they've sinned, and they're weighed down and oppressed by this. And the list goes on and on. But when they walk through our doors and when they walk through the doors of this church, what they're offered is freedom. Freedom. And it is only through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that men are set free. We are committed to freeing the oppressed by addressing the real problem that our clients face, and that is sin. And the weight of their sin sometimes weighs them down, and they cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. But like I said, we, as, as we help them, and as this church loves the people in your community, you can point them down the tunnel, and you can say, see that light? That's Christ. It's not me. It's not a member of Grace Baptist Church. It's It's Christ. That's where the hope is. Run towards that hope. And run towards that freedom. And so as we conclude today, I just want to ask you something. And my, my question to you is, are you free? Are you free? You can say, well, I'm an American. I'm free. No, are you free? I would hate to assume just because we're in a church and everyone walked through this door, was here voluntarily, I would hate to assume that we're all children of God here. And so I have to ask, have you been freed by Christ? Have you made him your life? Have you given everything to him? Have you turned away from your sin, repented of your sin, 
and strove towards Christ because of what he's done for you. And only because of what he's done for you. Not earning your salvation. You're not trying to be good enough. But you're giving it up. You're surrendering your life to Christ. Have you done that? Is he your savior? Or is he a savior? You have to wrestle with that in your heart. And if you have not dealt with God, may I warn you that your life is just a vapor. You could die coming out of this door and getting in a car accident on your way home. Do not leave your matter of salvation out there. Leave it here. Today is the day of salvation. If you have not come to Christ, if you are not born again, come to him today. You say, well, my past is is too much. No, it's not. No, it's not. Well, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. No, you won't. Do it now. Come to him now. And for those who have already believed in Christ, those who are children of the Most High, may I ask you, what are you doing with this book? Is this your guide? Or is it just another book that you read and you put on your shelf? Are you bringing the book to your neighbors? Are you bringing the book to yourself, to your family? Are you bringing the book? And so I believe the Lord has, as we read the news, as you, whatever you do, you say, this is the crazy times we're living in. And I agree. But God has raised us up for such a time as this. Let's bring this book to everyone around us and see what the Lord will do.